Let's talk about the fun stuff first. Sure. And by fun stuff, I mean GameStop. Okay, so wait, how are we going to do this? We've never done this side Patreon thing. Is this like this weird bait where we're going to start talking about it and cut it out and yeah. put it into, Let's do that. wow, this is kind of... We're going to do that. All right. So Eugene and I, prior to recording this episode, we picked two subjects that have nothing to do with GameStop. And then while we were preparing, sitting in the same space, we were casually talking about all of the GameStop related stuff that happened this last week. However, before and then you Eugene get... said, hey, and gone, hold on to what you're going to say until we're recording. And then I said, I want to talk about it on air. Well, let's, before we go any further, the reason why I want to talk about GameStop is not even about the trading aspect of it, of stocks. Yeah. It's actually the intersection of all things relevant in culture coming to this yeah. massive intersection. Eugene and I will not be making a recommendation on whether This is not should... financial advice. No. Straight up. This is not financial advice. So yeah, the one thing that Sharice and I are adamant about discussing when it comes to GameStop is very little about the trading side because, you know, that's not, that's not what we do. It's actually about the intersection of all these confounding factors coming to a head. And what that means, that means the world of media slash social media, influencer culture, socioeconomics, memes. Lots of memes. Digital communities. Yeah. So there's so many things that are at play that I think make it super fascinating and why this is happening right now. Yeah. And why it's such an interesting sort of intersection. So if you're still interested in this conversation, you should go support us on Patreon. Let's get into the Patreon stuff then. Let's do it. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash making. Let's get into it. All right, folks, we just wrapped up our little mini episode. If you want to go episode listen to in that. Episode. Yes. Like a babushka doll, like a Russian doll. If you want to go listen to that, you can support us on patreon.com slash Otherwise, we're going to get into this week's subjects. Let's do it. All right. My topic this week is the true cost of convenience. Third-party delivery apps with billions of dollars have perpetuated a distorted business model rooted in consumer convenience, and it's restaurants and workers paying the price. Obviously, one of the industries that's been the most shook up by the pandemic have been restaurants. I'm speaking from my backyard in Hong Kong. Restaurants are generally open 12 to 6 p.m. After 6 p.m., they're forced to close, and they usually do takeout until 9. Uh, And this is something I think that exists in various parts of the world, like I think different regions will have their own there stipulations or rules. There are some type of restriction on restaurants all over the world, essentially. Yeah. So in this piece for Eater, under their Eater Voices segment, uh, Deb T. Sharma discusses the destructive forces of delivery services. And 
while this is a US centric article, I think that actually this is 100% applicable across the board to any country's delivery services. Because while we might not have DoorDash in Hong Kong, we have like two other services that Deliveroo essentially do the same and thing. Food Panda. Exactly. They're the all thing. equivalent. We can just call them food delivery apps. Yes. Uh, and before I jump into this, this was actually a topic that was highly discussed when we were planning this episode. And I wanted to share the insights of uh, at Mahari, who, who shared their comments on why they thought this was interesting. I feel like the pandemic made restaurants, small businesses more aware that an e-commerce component to their business is not just a convenience, but a necessity at this point. So they need to, in the long run, invest more into it. The 30% cut by apps is pretty steep considering the business is not as good as it used to be. It made me personally make more of an effort to directly support the restaurants and try to pick up an order or call rather than conveniently using Uber or DoorDash. And in Montreal, everything is closed and we have a curfew going on where we have to be home by 7 p.m. So delivery is the only way that we can eat at the moment. And I would love to hear how other places are handling it. So the general business model is that these delivery services take 20 to 30% commission on the deliveries. And we've seen in Hong Kong. Wild. Yeah. It squeezes kind of both the restaurants who make less as well as the customers who pay more, which yeah. I think is an, an issue because you're offering a service you should take some. I just don't know what that percentage should be. Right. Because yeah. think about it, it's true, right? Like you can No, no, no. I mean, yeah. they have to, they are obviously a business and they have to make money in some way. It is frustrating. Mahari alludes to this as well in their comment. Actually, most restaurants you can order directly from them, mm-hmm. but the food delivery services offer just a little bit more convenience where they group restaurants together. Payments easier. Et yeah, and you can yeah. take a pick. But unfortunately, the reality is that restaurants did offer delivery service, but just like on an individual level. Yeah. You know? So the author uh, of the Eater piece, yeah, yeah. Dutty Sharma also talks about her own experiences starting Food to Eat, which was her startup. And it was a lower cost delivery app that began in 2010. Their point of differentiation was that they charged restaurants 10 cents per order and they charged the customer a convenience fee. So eventually, but eventually this didn't work out and they had to pivot into corporate catering as larger and better capitalized companies Mm. dominated the landscape, which is often the case, right? Before launching Food to Eat, Sharma discussed her own experiences with food delivery platforms and her parents' own restaurants that saw their revenues grow but profits decrease. So generally speaking, from what I understand, and and as told by Sharma, these platform reps go into restaurants, they praise a restaurant, and then they go on to say, hey, you should get on this or else you're going to miss out and be left behind. And some platforms have actually gone as far as to just basically throwing your restaurant on the platform anyways, and then manually making orders and picking it up, which is pretty, pretty bad. Our Macon community member Spencer was telling me that same thing about how that's like one of their recruiting recruitment strategies. Yeah. So before I jump into sort of the concluding part of it, Skurbs, Spencer, he actually has quite a bit of background and experience in this space. He, he has a startup that works directly with farmers. Bessie. Yeah, Bessie, to help provide uh, sort of a door-to-door service. Where they can, people can order and they get delivered a box of goods. And yeah, he so he's had, sort of adjacent because he's not, he's in the food space, but not doing food delivery with restaurants. Yeah. And these were his thoughts on the food delivery topic. All food businesses are fighting for customer acquisition 
and they're fighting for those same three meals a day. And that cost of acquisition has gone up, like in terms of getting the message out, advertising, et cetera. Uh, and he said Uber Eats and other restaurant delivery apps just rolled out this cornerstone, this corner store concept, which is an Instacart clone. And they need to justify their market capitalizations and valuations. So they swallow literally everything that can be gigified, basically turned into the gig economy, including restaurant delivery, restaurants themselves, like ghost kitchens, grocery, and SMB delivery. And traditional groceries are using one or more of the other mix of click and collect and store with in-store picking or dark store automation. The market for e-groceries is expanding because of the innovation of these platform apps, but there's a large amount of traditional institutions that are going other routes. Less capitalized businesses and startups can't compete on price or service slash product alone, or even investment in new product and tech development. So it forces businesses like Spencer's to move into basically niches, very focused niches where they can succeed. And in closing, some of Spencer's favorite ideas for businesses that have actually come from the creator economy. So I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but Mr. Beast Burger is a thing that Mr. Beast, the YouTube influencer, set up by taking over existing restaurants to act as ghost kitchens and then providing them with a white-labeled celebrity app with access to a delivery app platform to create this country-wide food brand. Yeah. Right? So basically, all the infrastructure was there. He just set it up. And he obviously has the community to support it. But I think So why were you interested in this overall? Why were you interested in the subject of food delivery apps? <laughs> well, I think for me, it, it, it all comes back to a very big topic. And it's this culture of convenience we've all become so subservient to. There's not a lot else to look beyond that, right? Like we also, we're often looking at that. And convenience is something that we all want in our lives because we're so busy. And obviously, we know why we're so busy. Because everyone's just either trying to make ends meet or... You know, the the way they've been pushed through the sort of grinder means they just have less free time. Something I don't enjoy about that connection to our reliance on convenience is it does feel like pointing the finger at individual consumers. I'm not saying that, I don't know, I guess I am kind of saying I want to shift blame to the food delivery apps for their practices, but the easier way to fix a situation is probably by being more critical of our individual reliance on convenience as opposed to trying to get food delivery apps to be more ethical. Yeah. It's actually so difficult because sometimes I don't want to use food delivery apps because there's actually another not so hidden cost associated with it. And it's like waste, right? Yeah. Like you order five things, it'll come in 20 pieces of plastic. Yeah, and they'll and, give you cutlery and. Well, you can request not have cutlery, but for me, it's like do it. I'd I'd rather eat like a shitty home cooked meal that I make myself, than sometimes bear the burden of seeing like this mountain of plastic. Yeah, but that also doesn't help the restaurants that are suffering. So yeah. where well, you're kind of stuck. Well, that's not very helpful. I know. It's, I'm, I I just think that your your decision making is like what is the actual outcome that you choose to decide on. God. It's not, as I'm saying, you're kind of stuck. Like it's kind of, I don't know. I, I get what you're saying. You, you're saying it's a dilemma either way, right? You can use the food delivery app, which helps you as someone who's stressed out and overworked, but then you have waste, but you do still indirectly support the restaurant yeah. by helping the restaurant. 
If you cook yourself, you don't generate waste, you don't use the food delivery app, but you are not supporting local business. Yep. We can't physically go out to restaurants to eat right now in the pandemic. I mean, I guess you could, but then you're risking your own health. Or you have to shift your schedule around. So, you know, I, I've, I've foregone convenience on that. But I, I wonder if we, we have slowed down a bit in life in, to the point where convenience is less important now. Are you talking Slightly about- Slightly less important. When you say we, do you mean me and you personally? Or are you saying like we as a culture? I think for some people, potentially, because everything that we thought mattered actually doesn't matter. It's sort of the slow erosion of the importance of Instagram. You know what I mean? Like we talked about it, I think last week or the week before where people were like, I don't even go on it anymore because I don't need it for work. Yeah. But That's I'm what I mean. Like it's a, it's a very blanket statement. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I don't know if I agree that culture is moving in that direction for the reasons you yourself outlined, which is that we are still overall blanket statement stressed and overworked so even if we are even if our values are to pick the inconvenient mm -hmm. route our lifestyles don't allow us to do that yeah there's a fair. lot of friction but in short i do think that the next 12 to 24 months or hopefully it's more of a permanent shift there will be more of a focus on supporting your locals you, you don't feel like there's think, been no, enough think, of it you think, there's, think there's it's going to ramp up i think it's going to be even bigger because they need it they all the more yeah. compared to like six months ago especially if you start to see the outcomes of shuttered doors or just things that you know you took for granted coffee shops and whatnot well i, I think it's also another sub theme is are we going to start supporting local independence or are we going to rely on the big corporates that won't go out of business to provide us with that food and whatever that sustenance, et cetera. Would oh. you rather a corner store or would you rather, I don't know, like Whole Foods? I mean, I hope for number one. Yeah. That's another thing I think we'll have to see play out. Small guy versus big guy. You know how earlier I was kind of outlining the dilemma or I was elaborating on the dilemma that you painted. Surely the best short-term solution is to order delivery directly from your favorite restaurant yep. that, that that's my only that's my definitive answer yep. here that i would encourage myself to do slash yourself i mean i know you go downstairs and just pick up the chassis yeah so barbecue pork should we move on let's do it What's your topic this week? All right. My topic this week comes from the founder of a men's beauty publication called Very Good Light. His name is David Yi, and he is publishing this new book titled Pretty Boys. He spoke with WWD about the book and about yep. redefining masculinity overall. The book is, I guess, the hook in terms of current news. Very Good Light was founded four or five years ago. Pretty Boys, the book, is coming out this June. And the book is a historical context to gender identity and beauty standards. He also includes a lot of notable figures in the beauty space like Bretman Rock and Patrick Starr. 
David in WWD, when asked why he wrote the book, said this. Very Good Light has always been about redefining masculinity. History is told from a straight, cis, white lens. Why is there fear when it comes to beauty? It got me interested in seeing different historical beings who also wore makeup or subscribed to beauty. It's a global thing. And then he goes on to talk about how hypermasculinity came from Western perceptions of beauty and a history of colonization all over the globe, and how it's possible for us as individuals to educate ourselves on how we reach this current moment in time regarding our feelings about beauty. You know, so it's not just about having a head knowledge of, oh, this happened in history, that's interesting, but it's also about knowing, and that affects how I perceive myself in relation to beauty and how I perceive others in relation to beauty. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was interesting in part because you included it. Yeah. I actually really love this topic. Oh. Surprisingly. Like and, I, well, not yeah. surprisingly. And like secondly, love is the I word I don't, don't use often. I don't think that we've ever really talked about it in depth yeah. on this podcast, which is rare because we've talked about a lot of things now. Yeah. One thing I'm, I want to ask you is how much of adoption and understanding comes down to just repetition. So this whole thing talks about hypermasculinity. It talks about in some ways recontextualizing it. Mm-hmm. How much of this is about just repeating the message over and over again? Because mm-hmm. I would say that I used to and, and when I was younger, my hypermasculinity was far different or my view point on it was far different or the way i even conducted myself was way different than it is now can you talk about that in detail how you used to perceive masculinity versus how you perceive it now i think that when i was i don't think i know when i was younger it was everything was about stepping up and showcasing in a competitive manner Mm -hmm. and now i care less about it like i still you know things i care about yeah obviously i want to do well at it but the the whole aspect i mean especially where i grew up i grew up in like a small town in canada like getting drunk getting into fights all that stuff like that was just like what life was about really right and i would say that was that was pretty textbook hyper masculinity mm. so but now when i look at it and it could be things that maybe originally growing up from that background knowing that background there are certain things that i was never against but I was also, maybe the first time I saw it, maybe the first time I saw uh, two gay men kissing made me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Now I don't even think twice about it. It's like on TV all, all the time. Like I was never against it, just so much as my visceral reaction was discomfort. Yeah. So I'm curious, like this in itself, because this topic to me, especially when it was rooted towards colonization, hyper-masculinity and colonization, how much of this story just needs to be told for people to understand where it comes from? Because I don't even know where hyper-masculinity comes from. I just, I, and in some ways, I, I I associate hypermasculinity with American culture. Well, okay. Lots of things that I could potentially respond to. One is I do think you're right that part of changing the way people perceive masculinity and gender identity is continuously repeating the same message, but it can't be the same people saying it. You know, if David Yee And I looked him up and he says the same thing in all of his interviews, which is great. Like he's very on message, but it takes more than David E, Mm -hmm. right? It means- It's like this, us talking about it. It means us talking about it and then listeners talking about it and more people talking about it. So it's not just 
the same people repeating themselves. It can be the same story, yeah. but just told by more and more people over yeah. time, right? And I, I think that's true. I don't think, I don't think that the narrative, the current narrative around changing the definition of masculinity and um, reconsidering gender identity needs like some revolutionary change. I think it's just like more people talking about it. Like you said, more people moving from being uncomfortable when faced with a certain picture of things to being accustomed to it, you know, and embracing it. And the other thing I wanted to respond to was, you know, you said you don't know where hypermasculinity comes from. And I mean, I, I'm not an expert, but I, I agree with David E. that a lot of it came from colonization, which is not yep. just America, but colonization by countries, you know, historically inserting their beauty standards into other places. Mm -hmm. So let's think about Hong Kong, mm -hmm. right? Like we were a British colony. So British colonialists come here and they put their perception of what is considered beautiful on the existing people here, even though the fact of it is that we look different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even just from an appearance level, before we talk about like performative, right? They say, oh, men should be taller and more muscular and like women's faces should be I don't know, like taller noses and pointier faces, mm -hmm. but that's not the reality of what we look like, right? And so over time, those expectations change the way we perceive ourselves. Yeah. And so we wind up um, having a lot of like ingrained ideas of what it means to be, you know, beautiful and what it means to like be the ideal version of our gender. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in terms of gender norms and all that stuff, I see things most definitely changing. How fast is obviously the question everyone will ask. Like, of course it'd be faster. But one thing that actually still sticks in my mind is this guy that used to play for the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade, for people that are not familiar with basketball. He's, he's actually really well known. Yeah. So yeah. Dwayne Wade, this is interesting. This was in the news about a year ago. Um, he and his wife have a 12-year-old child named Zion who decided to use she, her pronouns and to move forward in life using she, her and defining their identity differently yeah. from the way they were born, essentially. The reason um, why, to me, this is such a landmark is because you come from the world of hyper-masculinity, professional sports. Black culture, obviously, black culture in terms of hip hop has always been. Yeah, uh, I mean that. Homophobic. There's historical context to that too. Like if you think about the history of the United States and slavery, mm -hmm. part of the reason why black culture perpetuates hypermasculinity is a response to that. Mm -hmm. is Can you elaborate on that actually? Because they had historically, they didn't have power, mm. and so when you know slaves were freed. In order to gain power in society, they had to um, perform the way powerful people at that time performed, which was white men, right? White cis men. And so even if that's not natural, in order to have power in society, they had to act like white cis men. And that's just kept, kept going on. You know, things don't change that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, you said how fast do things change? You, yeah. And it's not going to be... A couple yeah. hundred years where people like forget that in yeah. the way they act.
But to that yeah. point, like, I think you have a high profile individual like Dwayne Wade, who, who's not playing anymore, yeah. but he's still very high profile, he's won NBA championships. And he's able to be a new platform for yeah. open mindedness. I think those are actually the types of wins that need to continue to snowball. Totally. I completely agree. And I think one, I don't know if this is necessary to talk about, but you know, there's this catchphrase of toxic masculinity, which is said a lot and it gets backlash from people because people think it means that, oh, you're canceling men, period. But actually what David Yee says and other people on this subject, they say that it's really just redefining masculinity as being more than one thing. Mm. You know, you were talking about your childhood experience and it's just like, I think for a lot of us, women included, like anyone of any gender, we have a narrow idea of what it means to be masculine. And we could reinterpret that essentially. So what I'm curious about is masculinity as a definition, something that is a social construct versus what, is there any part of that that's biological? I don't know. I'm like comfortable with saying, I don't know the answer to that question. I did have a pretty big conversation with a friend maybe a year ago about what even is the usefulness of the words masculine and feminine at this point. I feel like both of them are shortcuts to say things that maybe we don't mean. Like, is the word itself a stereotype? Essentially is what I'm saying. Like, is there even anything factual within it that is useful anymore? Yeah, because for me, the reason I ask is that, is masculinity without toxic masculinity a bad thing? No. And what is masculinity in general if it's like a social construct? and for me personally, I, I think that when I think of masculinity, I think of certain things such as like, is being competitive a masculine trait? Yeah. These are things I'm trying to understand. And I don't think you have the answer. I don't have the answer. What I think when I've been reading about this in preparation of talking about it was, I feel like when people are countering toxic masculinity, they're really just trying to say, You can be a human however you want to be. You can be competitive without calling it masculinity. And you can wear makeup without calling it femininity. Like you can just be those things without having an idea of like, this is the only gender identity that allows for it. So, you know, I mentioned I had this conversation with a friend of mine, and this is the personal aspect I wanted to talk about at kind of wrapping up the subject is that I have a friend from college. Their name is Tara and they're a model. They were in the recent spring summer 2021 Prada runway show and they were recently featured in an article on Vogue titled Prada's latest face represents the future of modeling. And I'm super proud of them. In it, Tara says this about questioning what it means to be any gender. I came into cultural studies with questions about what it means to be a gender, a nationality, or an age. Whenever you introduce yourself, those are the things that separate us. It seems to me that the labels limit us and keep producing conflict between these invisible borders. I do not like to restrict myself with stereotypes and stigmas by actively choosing an identity category for myself. And I think that's really aspirational and really challenging. And I don't think we're there as a, you know, 
general society where we're beyond using gender identity and labels. But the fact that there are people like Tara and that Prada had Tara as like face of their runway yeah. and spring summer campaign is really hopeful. Yeah. If, if you're willing to forego titles, there's nothing wrong with that. However, you also need to realize that you need to be extremely patient because there'll be a lot of explanation going on. Like you can't really be upset if like someone comes across your lack of titling and then they, they're met with confusion. Yeah. That's just what you're taking on. But I think that if you're going to stick your, well, it's, it may, may sound like it's negative, but I was going to say stick your neck out, but I don't mean it that way. I mean, if you're willing to go in this direction, you have already established your desire to be one of the, yeah, the pioneers. Yeah. Pioneers, basically. I, yeah. I definitely agree. And I think and this is so sentimental, but I think Tara is perfect for it because they are the most patient person. Yeah. And I can speak that from personal reference. But I think when not just because I know them, but the fact that they are this face of a big brand is kind of similar to what you were saying about Dwayne Wade. You know, like it is more in the limelight. Yeah. Right people look to influencers and or brands for some sort of validation yeah. as in trust, right? Yeah. Trust and vet. Yeah. Is there any part of the interview that discusses how colonization itself actually pushed hypermasculinity to the forefront? Yeah, yeah. Um the WD the WWD interview, David says this. He says, Europeans were literally taking their flags and putting them on countries saying this is mine. With that was that standard of westernized beauty. You had to have a certain skin tone, eyes or nose that looked a certain way. This exacerbated with the globalized world. Also eugenics, this idea that certain genes are more powerful or better than others, it only makes sense that it's trickled down generation to generation. And as a beauty industry in 2021, we have the ability to amplify Black, Indigenous, and people of color folks and to understand our conditioning and why we feel this way and how this isn't normal. Hmm. Got it. I mean, I think he's written quite a lot. I did wind up looking, if for people who are interested very Good Light is a publication that publishes regularly on this subject. And there's more in-depth writing regarding the colonialism in connection to toxic masculinity and beauty. Yeah, And one last thing I was going to say, I, I think I've just been thinking about money a lot this week. And actually, from a money perspective, dismantling toxic masculinity is a good thing because you open up the beauty market mm. to so many more potential people instead of saying oh women are the only like white women are the only people who wear lipstick and so we're only going to make red lipstick that works for white skin you're saying not only can women of every skin color enjoy lipstick but also men so every person on the planet is now your target consumer yep and that's my additional business insight. Sounds good. Good place, to good place to cap things off. Yep. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. 
We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.